Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor. With mixed market bet builders, in-play betting and a selection of welcome offers, make sure your Premier League is spent with BetVictor's premier betting app. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, everyone. What's up? Chelsea fans, I hope you're all feeling good. This is Xavier Mbuyamba. Are you listening to the Blue Day podcast? Enjoy. Chelsea supporters here at the Blue Day podcast it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you this individual on the podcast today he made 66 appearances for the club scoring two goals he played with the likes of Erling Jonsson, Gavin Peacock and a certain Dennis Wise plus he is a well-known TV host in his native Denmark here is Jakob Kielberg Jakob welcome to the Blue Day podcast how are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's very nice being here with you. No, the pleasure, as I say, Jakob, is all mine. I understand your busy schedule, so thank you for taking the time out for this. Anything for a gentleman that likes Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> well, in that case, let's begin, shall we, Jakob? Let's start at the beginning. Did you have any particular influences when it came to becoming a professional footballer? I had my dad, who was a... He says himself that he was a good footballer, but everybody else says that he wasn't. But he <laughs> had this dream, of course, of becoming a professional footballer, that he was ne- never anywhere near it. But he encouraged me, uh, as he could see that I liked playing football and I had some talent for it. He encouraged me. He drove me around um, without pacing me. But the support was there all the way while my mum isn't this it's not as if she she sort of tried to discourage me from it but uh she wanted me to do my school at the same time i think this is probably quite quite normal isn't it the standard parents approach to uh to a to a boy's dream of becoming a footballer uh so it was very the support was certainly there but from from my perspective at the time it was a complete no go. It wasn't possible. Yes, I had this dream, but it was never gonna. It was completely unrealistic. Of course, it was never ever gonna happen in the whole world. Of course, I wanted to become a lawyer. That's what I believed in, and I thought I could make one day. That never happened. Of course. What position did your father play? He was a striker, a very good success ah. himself. For now, we go back again. Uh, I'm sure he scores some <laughs> goals, but we talk. Close to Sunday League standard, I think, uh, right. without being disrespectful to my dad. So it was it was one of those. But when there's a football fever, football heart, 
pulse in our family. I think it just that's certainly how I got in. I had a football pitch 50 meters from our house. Uh, and that, the school was on the other side. I preferred being on the football pitch, of course, before school, after school with my mates playing all the time, basically. That's, you know, that this was before the internet was born. So mm. there was only so many things we could do. And it certainly was outside. So that's why football was the hobby and the lifestyle and the passion. Uh, lovely. Other than your father, who else were your idols growing up as a kid? Yeah, but one one of them was pretty early Alan Ball. And that was because I had a picture of Alan Ball at the back of a magazine that I got one day from my parents. Uh, it was some cartoon magazine. And there was a picture of this Alan Ball from, where was he? Was it Leeds? I don't even remember that. I show you. It wasn't as if I was a big fan, but I just thought, wow, that's a star. And then later on, when I actually realized what football was about, uh, became Mario Kembers, the Argentinian, Glenn Hoddle, who later, of course, bought me. Mm. Um, those kind of players. There was some, yeah, no, there was Ian Rush, all the Liverpool players, basically, because we in Denmark, we could not watch Chelsea because they never showed Chelsea. That was on one match per day, uh, per week, sorry, and that was Manchester United or Liverpool against whoever they played. Uh, so it was especially... Douglas, Rush, those guys at, at Liverpool, and Jan Mulvey, the Dane, when he was there, of course. Mm. Uh, but very much Liverpool, for some reason. Now, back in the summer of 1993, you signed for Chelsea from Silkberg for a fee of £485,000. How did this move come about? It was a long time coming, basically, because I... I may I entered the Danish national team just after they won the uh, they won the ninety two European Championship um, and made my first full debut uh, against Argentina where I man marked Maradona and uh, football fans would know that regardless of their age that this was quite a big guy uh, certainly in the football world as small as he was uh, and I did pretty well. And that made, basically made my name within the uh, amongst the agents. So after that match, a lot of agents wanted to be my agent. And uh, I chose this guy who then, Vincenzo Morabito, very, very good, nice gentleman, who later actually sold a lot of players to Chelsea. Um, but I was the first one. And um, he got in touch with Huddle or the other way around, Colin Hutchinson. And Huddle watched me, I think, once only in Aarhus in Jutland in Denmark, where I played a decent game. And the day after, there was a telefax, as it was. It wasn't an email, telefax, um, saying, uh, inviting me over to Chelsea within 24 hours if I wanted to negotiate. So it was very much... Chelsea inviting me and then I could say yes or no. There wasn't no hardball. It wasn't uh, Mbappé or Ronaldo or, or uh, <laughs> Lukaku saying, I want this and I want that. I said just uh, Jakob Kjellberg. Yes, thank you very much. No transfer saga then or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, I didn't discuss the 400000 I thought that was a hell of a lot of money. I still think it is, but I do appreciate that some of the guys these days, they don't, they don't wake up in the morning for... Less than that, basically. That's uh, exaggerated, of course, but it's that's crazy to think. Some of those guys make per week what I was sold for. I think it's really, I think it's funny. I think it's funny. They are better than I was, but uh, still much better. <laughs>
Apart from Chelsea, was there any other interest that you was made aware of in you at that time? There were some, there were some loose contacts from uh, from the German league. Uh, the more concrete one was actually from uh, Dave Bassett he, at Sheffield United, uh, quite just a little bit before the Chelsea approach. Uh, and I thought that was a done deal, basically, naive as I was. Um, the only thing was that the bottom of this tailor fax uh, was just, please bring your boots. And my agent said that that means they're not just going to buy you. They want to see you in training before they buy you. Mm. So uh, so he, on my behalf, thanked no thanks. Um, I did do one practice match for Nottingham Forest. I was with Brian Clough as manager. I was absolute. We're not allowed to swear on this program, are we? I was. It was really bad, very bad performance. My excuse was that I had been injured just before, but this was half a year before I ended up at Chelsea. So uh, a lot of things happened in that half a year, obviously, uh, not least meeting Maradona. You've briefly mentioned Glenn Hoddle. Of course, he was the manager of Chelsea in this period. You was one of his early signings. How influential was he in getting you to Chelsea? To be honest, that much to Glenn when I arrived. That was Colin Hutchinson doing the negotiation, <laughs> <laughs> as we call it, <laughs> when we try and be worth more than we were. Uh, and, and Glenn was more basically saying that he had bought me because he wanted a, a playing central defender and he had this plan of uh, a, a playing sweeper with two uh, markers uh, with a three or a five at the back uh, and he was as he was as a player very very clear very very clever football mind and that was that was what I was met with there was no doubt about what he wanted to do and he was very good at explaining that so from my point of view, it was easy peasy in understanding what to do. Uh, and after that, it was basically just about trying to perform, which obviously wasn't that easy because moving from the Danish league to the Premier League was like, yeah, it was like the North Pole to the South Pole was just completely uh, two different two different worlds. But uh, I had, I still have the highest admiration for, for Glenn Hoddle. He was a legend as a player and I think he was a, an incredibly good uh, manager. Did it take you a while to adapt to the English game? It's, it's interesting, these things, because I'm at this stage, I'm uh, 23 years of age, just having moved from Denmark. On my, I had my girlfriend from Denmark with me, but we were obviously not very settled. Got a little house out in Hollyport, Maidenhead. Uh, in the beginning, it was no issue for me settling because I just became uh, player of the year in Denmark. So my... My self-confidence was uh, index 100. Uh, so I started extremely well uh, in all humbleness against John Fashino, against uh, Wimbledon. And then that, that was, it was bloody tough, <laughs> I realised. Uh, not least for my forehead uh, in those duels against Fashino and the lot. So the first couple of games, matches, I was fine. And then... It, it took its toll. It was like the, my body reacted, my my mental state reacted a little bit as well, and then it got it got tough. I remember, I think it was my debut at home actually, so it wasn't that many matches before I, I started struggling a little bit against Norwich. Uh, Chris Sutton played for them, scored within a few minutes, and I I wasn't really sharp at that moment, and that was I think 
everything around me starting to creep in under the skin of this 23-year-old uh, naive uh, Danish guy just arriving in from pharma country. Uh, I think that was the, that process was pretty tough. But then luckily we had some very good results that same autumn beating Man U at home, beating Liverpool at home 1-0. That's right. Times. Yeah. Um, and then when we approached December coming up to Christmas, I started struggling a little bit. Mm. Um, my excuse again would be my body wasn't ready for this uh, often twice a week matches. I was certainly not used to that. And I had had a tough year with this match against Maradona in Argentina uh, and a lot of things just happening in my world because of this transfer happening in the summer, uh, not really having settled privately in England yet. So I remember us losing at Southampton. I think we were close to the relegation show uh, zone. I played against Yandawi, great striker, very physical, and I struggled uh, quite enormously against him. Um, I don't think I was any worse than the other guys, but... Um, Glenn Hodler certainly thought, and that was about around Christmas. And that was the only time he basically just about slaughtered me in front of the rest of the dressing room. So I thought I became the scapegoat. He think it was fair, of course, that's why he did it. But we had to play the day after or two days later, you can look that up, uh, against Newcastle. And I was dropped. He said he was going to give me a short break, but I was dropped. And that was pretty tough for my self-confidence, of course. But... Um, I have to say it is now, but he was though in those days as well. It's bloody hard <laughs> playing in the Premier League, uh, regardless of when you were there. So, uh, but a fantastic adventure. But the first half year, that was it was tough. It was tough. Just to illustrate your point, Chelsea lost to Southampton three-one on the twenty-seventh of December of ninety-three. Your next appearance would not be until the 9th of Feb the next year against Sheffield Wednesday. Huddle called a short break. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, but it was fair, it was fair enough. I, I presume it's, it's a lot of years ago, of course. But I think, I think I was done at this stage, to be honest. I didn't have... We were fighting against a little some relegation issue there. And I was a little bit um, lost... I think privately as well, not really having settled 100% yet. And I know a lot of fans, I'm a fan now as well, when when players don't perform, we say, just, you make a fortune, so just perform, man. It's not that easy. Uh, whether you are paid 5,000, 500 or 100,000 per week, it is not easy. Uh, it's a new culture, it's a new, just new surroundings. Just driving the car in the wrong side, for crying out, it's difficult. And that's stressful. Uh, so sometimes I have it when I find, I follow the fans, say, come on, give give the man a break. He's doing everything he's can, he, he can. He's trying to settle in. Come on, guys. It's not easy. It certainly wasn't easy for me. You've mentioned the wins against Manchester United and Liverpool. Yeah. With you in the heart of the defence, how was you finding playing in a different country? Back to the south-north Paul uh, Keith, uh, mm. the, the it was just uh, two different sports basically mm. coming from the Danish Super League to the to the Premier League. Of course, when you play international, I play these national matches. The 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 football, the standard of football was very high, of course, but the pace was nowhere near 
the Premier League, with one exception. The match I mentioned against Maradona in Mar del Plata outside uh, Buenos Aires, that's the quickest game I've ever participated in. Uh, with Batistuta, Canitia for football knowers, that was just an, uh, uh, Diego Simeone in midfield. That was just an unbelievable team. We would have got thrashed 10-0 if we hadn't had Peter Schmeigel at goal. But anyway, to cut it short, the Premier League, the pace of it is just unbelievable. It was then and it still is. It's obviously even quicker now. Hmm. Uh, So it was a huge shock. And that's why I say again, it's without coming up with stupid excuses, the, the... the system, my body, my 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 mental state, uh, physical state, everything just took some beating, and in the at some stage, obviously, I couldn't cope with it. So I suppose Glenn Harder was right in just giving me this short break of two months. Fair enough. <laughs> now, Jakob, you said just earlier that around Christmas time, Chelsea were in the bottom three. In fact, they were. They were having a bit of a rough time results-wise. Was the team still fully behind Glenn Hoddle and were there potential issues with Ken Bates and Matthew Harding that you were aware of? And just finally, why do you think the team at this stage was so inconsistent? Were the players still supportive of Glenn Hoddle? Yeah, I I, th- I think so. I think that the trouble here was that Glenn Hoddle, with Chelsea's support, uh, was trying to make us play football in a more European way. And he got the players that were suited to that style. But uh, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, they didn't really care about that. They just did the physical and uh, Wimbledon. Uh, So I suppose from time to time, we got outmatched, out, out. Muscled, if you like, and we we simply weren't ready for that. I was one of the guys who should have stood up to that. Um, I did my best with Frank Sinclair and Steve Clark and and Johnson and the rest. Uh, but we had we had some, with no disrespect, some lightweighters, and sometimes we just got run over by these uh, big physical teams. We were by far a better playing team than a lot of the teams that beat us. But as you know, that doesn't really. Mm. It, it, it's just the way it is. You still have to score more goals than the opponents. But that was, to, I believe, that was the trouble at this stage. Nobody did not believe Glenn's uh, style of football, also because he could show us better than we could what to do. Uh, so there was no doubt in my mind. And, and you also see then when it picks up after the Christmas break or whenever, then we do start and we get a nice, decent string of results together and not least the... Uh, if a cop uh, run, so hmm. his ideas were were fine. Whether he had the material in the beginning, I'm 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 not sure about that. My own position would be in question, of course, uh, for part of the time. One of the nice ones from Ken Bates was, I think it was at, at Ipswich. I think we lost one nil. I'm not sure which one it was, but I, it was certainly after. But during this bad run, uh, and we had quite a lot of injuries. And after that, we are very disappointed, all of us, of course. And Ken Bates comes in I, and he just says, just try and keep this going, guys, until the real players come back. It was that kind of, <laughs> that kind of re- re- reaction from me. I thought, bloody hell, what are we in for here? That was sort of him uh, not really believing that the squad here was, <laughs> was strong enough. I may, 
I may uh, I may sort of miss say some of the words he, uh, he he came up with. I thought it was pretty steep, like the Glenn Huddle one against me after the Southampton. But it was people were under pressure. Bates were under pressure. Goddle, Huddle got under pressure. Now, Peter Shreves, our coach, was under pressure. We could feel that. We were under pressure. Everybody's under pressure. It's a big club struggling. Being in the, at the relegation zone, it's, uh, it, of course it wasn't good enough. And then it's not. You just have to cope with that. Uh, and I remember Peter Shreves saying it, and it was a good point at some stage, before, just before walking out, I think for another dis, uh, uh, defeat against some Sheffield team. Uh, re- remember, guys, these are trying to take away your 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 bre- bread and butter. Uh, but, and he, he was right. They were they were trying to uh, to take our job basically or for us to get rid of our job because if we had got re- relegated, half of us would have been released or sold mm. or whatever mm. if we could be sold. It, it is serious business, of course. I think about that time. Every time I see a team being in the relegation zone, being close to the drop or even get dropped. Uh, unfortunately, I have been in that situation, situation getting getting relegated. It's horrible as a footballer. It's the worst. You feel useless. And if you don't feel useless yourself, your fans will remind you, mm. of course. Thankfully, for yourself and for the club, we managed to get over that slump. We did finish 14th, but you also managed to score your first goal for Chelsea. It was in the last home game of that season against Sheffield United. But make a comment about that because that was yes. against exactly the team that or the club that invited me, and they just put this note in the telefax: "Remember your boots," meaning they weren't quite sure about me. So that actually, it was a, it was it was it was a little bit sweet, bittersweet. That goal, I really really enjoyed that. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it being part of the reason they got relegated. I believe. It's the, I'm not that cynical, but still, they should have bought me, of course. Then I could have said no, because I would rather go to Chelsea, of course. But um, there you go. What are your memories of that game? Because this was the game where Sheffield United went down because they lost to us. Yeah, frankly, now I'm an old guy who's empathetic. At the time, there was no empathy. I just thought, yes, daddy has just sent this team down. I wasn't the only scorer of for Chelsea, of course, in that match. I think they equalised after I scored. But anyway, we won and they got relegated. And I thought, yes, you can learn it. Here you go. Um, that was the way I had it at that time. But now, of course, it's a little bit more. I don't, I don't wish for anybody to be relegated. It's horrible, as I said. It's really horrible. It is, as I said, it's tough business. And me scoring that goal was part of... Me then being uh, on a higher note for Chelsea, being ready to start the next season for Chelsea, and that helped me. It certainly didn't help Sheffield United, but that was their problem at the time. A couple of weeks later, Chelsea appeared in the FA Cup final, where we lost 4-0 to Manchester United, a game in which you played. Looking back now, what was going through your mind on that day, and what are your memories of the FA Cup, both as a player and as a supporter? But quite frankly, one of the strongest experiences of of my life. Uh, it was a grey day, drizzling rain, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but it was a contrast to the semi final against Luton that most Chelsea fans would remember, where we beat them two nil, uh, packed Wembley Stadium, where we played 
very, very good. We're under control most of the match. So I thought we're going to just repeat this against Man U in the FA Cup final. Um, but the pressure around the FA Cup final was unbelievable. You can't compare it to the semi-final. The final was just unbelievable. The, the media, the tension, the fans, ourselves, of course, the, the manager, the coach, ourselves, unbelievable. And that's where you can really talk about experience matters. Uh, Glenn Hoddle had tried it all. He started on the bench, as far as I remember. Uh, but we had a very strong defence. And remember, we had beaten Manchester United twice in, that, uh, in the season. Uh, at home and away, twice with Gavin Peacock. Peacock. So, we, of course, we weren't big favourites. But I thought, I genuinely thought we could do it. And we believed we could for an hour. We had that, did he not hit the crossbar, Gavin, at some stage? Yeah. Um, so, we, we, were, we were fine. Uh, but then all of a sudden, of course, this penalty, and then it was just, uh, yeah, regardless of whether it was a correct decision or not, um, it's just we had a horror half half hour in the, in the end of it. But the whole day, the whole experience was was massive. Um, I remember us doing this uh, bus trip up at Kings Road in Chelsea the day after, uh, regardless of the loss. But that, as you know, it was because this was the start. It was the first time in many many years that we were anywhere near anything uh, like silverware. So I mean, today Chelsea wouldn't do the bus trip hmm. at Kings Road after a 4-0 defeat in the FA Cup final, of course. But that's just, it just describes the difference uh, between now and then. It was a huge achievement that we had got into that final. But 4-0 or 1-0, there's a bit of a difference. 1-0 would have looked a little bit nicer, I think. What was the mindset of the players knowing that you lost the cup final but then still looking to do this open top bus around the King's Road. Were there some players apprehensive about this? Were no, we all were. We were we were we felt a little bit embarrassed about it. Uh, I think I can talk for most of us, if not everybody. Uh, but at the same time, trying to embrace why Chelsea wanted to do it mm. to celebrate that we were starting to go places. Uh, so. In hindsight, I think it was the correct decision. There was a lot of people out there. And that just shows you, again, but looking at your own beautiful national team, almost winning the, uh, the, uh, the European Championship, you, you, sh- you have to celebrate getting to a final. Uh, it's a great achievement. If, if you always just say, if we don't win, it's a catastrophe. You can't, that's not a life to live. That's spoiled. Uh, it does it, for me. It doesn't work like that. You should never be happy losing, of course, but you have to sometimes put things into perspective. Um, and I think that's what Chelsea did right there. I don't think uh, Glenn Hoddle really enjoyed doing an open bus mm-hmm. trip after a four nil defeat. He'd won so much, but I think he's a clever guy. He he would have appreciated as well why it was the right thing to do. Um, if nobody had turned up, it would have been a disaster, catastrophe. But people did turn up. And it was a day of of uh, celebration. And and as you know, from then on, almost, it really kicked off a year later, certainly. Some Chelsea fans who I've spoken to have a theory and believe that Chelsea lost the FA Cup final 
because of how bad their FA Cup final song was. <laughs> I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I'll agree on that. That's a great <laughs> excuse for me. I actually thought it was because we conceded two penalties and lost the blood from the last half hour. I like this one. I'm, as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm in TV entertainment business now. I, I like this. That's a better story. So I'll buy that. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah, no, 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 no. Well, I think. I think we genuinely lost against experience. I do have, what was it called? The one we, uh, we recorded with madness. Was that blue is the color? Was that the one for that? It was subs with blue day. It was blue day. I yes. That was a phenomenal day in the studios. I really enjoyed that. That was one of the big moments as well. I thought it was hilarious, really good fun. And we were <laughs> crap singers, all of us. <laughs> you, you seem to form a good partnership with Erlen Jonsson during your time at Chelsea. Did you guys get on well away from the training ground? Very much so. And I, I just, I have to agree 100% with those many fans who really rate Erlen Johnson highly. Um, because from, from my perspective, from my perspective, I was bought by Huddle for central defence. And when I arrived, that cost Erlen his spot. In the beginning, basically, it was me and Franz Sinclair and uh, Hardle, I think, in the beginning, most of the time. Uh, so Erlen played from time to time and not very, very often. And then I hit this bad form, bearing in mind while I was playing and he was on the bench or not even in the squad. Erlen was, was one of those people that really supported me, uh, talked to me, helped me out, giving me advice about life, uh, him being Norwegian, me being Danish. There was no bitterness, no anything from him other than just utter support. Uh, and I've never forgotten him for that. I really thought that was, I, I wanted, I would like to say that I would have reacted in the same way that he did, but I thought that that showed what a grand, grand person he is. Uh, and again, he, I got dropped. He got into the side and he played fantastically well, so constant. Uh, and it was the same. There was no, on a private matter, no change from his part of view. Uh, and then I got into the team again, of course, and formed this partnership with him for a long period of time. And we just got on very, very well. We had the same kind of mentality, I think, being Scandinavian. Um, but he helped me a lot in the beginning. He helped me a lot when I was dropped, even if I got dropped because of him, <laughs> partly. So it was, it's just, he's a, he's a great, great character uh, who helped me a hell of a lot. Uh, for, I guess the same goes for Frank Sinclair. It was the three of us fighting for two spots a lot of the time, basically, uh, when Sinclair wasn't right back or right wing back. Um, but I'd never had anything but support from those guys in in the in the back four or five, Steve Clark as well, um, mm. Andy Myers, whoever they were, Scott Minto, of course later, mm. uh, great bunch of guys. Now the next season, the ninety four ninety five season, Chelsea were appearing in Europe for the first time in many many years in the Cup Winners Cup. Yeah, you played in the first game, I believe it was against Austria Memphis. Yeah. And that was your only appearance in Europe due to a rule which allowed a maximum amount of foreign input in the squad. This included Scottish players. Yeah. Stupid rule plus a manager who was 
beginning to lose the uh, idea of how football should be played, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fair enough. But it was a weird rule, to be honest. Unfortunately, you were one of the players to miss out. Yeah. What was the conversations like between you and Glenn at this point? Was there any part of you that was, in fact, debating on your future, whether you felt you needed to leave because of this? And at this stage, what was going through your mind? At this stage, I'm starting slowly, I believe, to struggle a little bit in pre-season. Nothing holding me uh, out from playing, I believe, uh, if I don't remember wrongly. But also, I've always wanted to be in the team, of course, in the starting eleven. But I've, I've never been a stupid footballer. Uh, and I could see how well it, it was basically... Erlen Johnson or me at this stage. And he was on fire, Erlen. Never made mistakes. He was strong. He was commanding. So I could appreciate it also because he was my friend. I could appreciate that he was very, very strong. And at that time, he was stronger than I was. Uh, I wasn't as strong now than as I was when I arrived in, in the summer of 93 when I could uh, fight and, and hold on to John Fashion and those guys. Uh, niggling knee injury starting now, uh, him being on fire. I, I, I never knocked on Glenn's door saying, what the hell is going on? It's not as if I could see now and predict that I was going to struggle from now on, but it wasn't, it wasn't as fun now uh, for me, obviously. With Europe, I wasn't in, so much involved in that. Uh, and the, these injuries starting a little bit. Uh, so the, it, it wasn't fun at this stage. And it didn't get much more fun after that, of course, as you, as you know, because of the knee. Yes, I would like to discuss that now, Jakob. In a game against Aston Villa, it was around about April of 95, you picked up an injury which turned out to be more serious than first feared. At the time, initially, was you optimistic of overcoming this injury? And what was the early prognosis? Because, it, it, as, as you know, with footballers, we, we get a knee injury and then we do some arthroscopy, uh, get away some, uh, some of the, uh, maybe some of the meniscus and cartilage or whatever it's called in there. And then two weeks later, we are up and running again. And that's what I was expected to do. But it, it after this Villa, Villa incident, but it obviously turned out that there was more to it. Uh, and, and a year later, we realised it was pretty bad. But at first, I thought, OK, I'll get up and running and just get on with it and then try to start fighting for my place. But without making excuses from this, it, I was never 100%. It was at the back of my mind that there was something wrong with my knee. And as a footballer, a top sports person, uh, if if there's something wrong with you, it can be holding you back 5%. That's enough for you not to perform, uh, obviously. It's all about percentage. And that's enough for you not to, it's enough for you not to perform 100%. And that, that was... Uh, uh, that that was that was getting on my mind, of course. So it, it wasn't it wasn't much fun. Um, also, because I was in England to play football and not so much else. So they were tough times. They were. As the months go on and on, with it seems no end in sight. What was the conversation between yourself and the manager like? Because I believe at this point, Glenn would leave 
the job to take the England national role with Rude Hullet replacing him. Was there any conversations between you and Rude, or perhaps, in fact, yourself and the hierarchy about what plans should be made going forward? With the risk of jumping a bit in time here, I, I, I remember very, very clearly just a few weeks before Glenn Hoddle becomes the, uh, or stops, uh, as Chelsea manager to uh, to overtake uh, the the England manager job, and he brought me into his office and uh, he he praised me for my my uh, attitude with all these injuries because at this stage I've had I think three knee operations, uh, so I've spent a lot of hours working with the physios Mike yeah. Banks and the rest of them Terry Burns, uh, trying to get fit again. Um, in vain, of course, it turned out. So he praised my attitude and basically gave, said, I still believe you, uh, believe in you. So he extended my contract with a year. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure he believed I was ever going to play again. I don't know. Maybe he did. I believe, this is between you and I, I believe this was a gentleman making a gentleman's act, uh, basically giving me a, a small extension to my contract, which meant a lot to me, of course, uh, because I suppose, I don't know, did he know at this stage that he was going to become England manager? I don't know. Hmm. Uh, so I believe believe that it was a, a massive gesture from, from Glenn Hoddle, uh, for which I've, I'm forever grateful, of course, because uh, I never played again. Hmm. You've mentioned Mike Banks. His name hasn't been mentioned on the podcast a lot, but he was at Chelsea for such a long time. What was the relationship like with him, considering all the extensive work and procedures it would take to try and get through this injury? I was going to say, unfortunately, I had a very, very good relationship with Mike <laughs> Banks. Uh, it should just have been the physio doctor that I would see very rarely. But uh, mm. I got to know Mike very, very well, unfortunately, because of all my injuries. And he was, is uh, uh, just a 100% pure gentleman. He was the guy who took me for my last scan uh, to check, look at the scan at the Harley Street where I got the verdict uh, that Mike obviously agreed with, saying that there was a big hole in my, uh, in my knee. And where Mike's just in his gentle way said, asked the question, just Jakob, you you need to consider what you're going to do after after football, and that was his way of saying, mate, quit. This is not mm. this is not worth it. He he could see he's a, he's a clever guy. He could see that this was serious in there, so he didn't make the decision for me, but he certainly helped me doing it. Uh, and quite soon after, I had a alternative view on it in Denmark back in back at home which was exactly the same as Mike had said so you could say Mike uh, helped me along this year and a half with just in, injuries injuries operations um, and he helped me basically make make the decision in the end as well uh, so a uh, great gentleman I believe he guys like this we uh, of course we don't talk about them the most it's more the footballers but they they mean a lot to a club and Mike he uh, he I saw him in action. He was, uh, he was a very, very strong character and a very, very clever, good, good physio doctor. And just to clarify, what was the time frame for all of this? Because it was in 97 that you had to retire. Yeah. Now, we, uh, now we're in the summer of uh, 90, 97. 
sorry, no, this is 96, actually. Uh, summer of 96, because when right. they officially retires, summer 97, I believe. So mm. there's a long process there where I'm still under contract trying to get back and I'm not really getting back anyway. So officially, yes, I think it was December 97, uh, something like that. I have to say the Chelsea squad, the players, uh, Everybody around them, Ruth Gullit, who took over from Glenn, Glenn, uh, Ken Bates as well, Colin Hutchinson. Uh, I never got anything but support. Uh, and I'm forever grateful for that. The backroom staff, uh, they were all great, great, great. So I think back at my time at Chelsea with great uh, joy. Uh, I would have been without the injuries, of course, and some of the defeats and Glenn dropping me. But... <laughs> Overall, uh, an unbelievable experience, wonderful four years that um, basically defined my life. If I hadn't been at Chelsea, I wouldn't be a TV presenter now, I'm sure. So it was, uh, it was brilliant. If I can just sum that up, after the squad, I think Vialli had arrived, Gullit was there. They realised that I had retired through injury. They called me up and got me to uh, TGI Fridays in, uh, in London. And I got there, they came back after a uh, an away match and uh, there I was and they just wanted to say proper goodbye to me. And they presented me uh, with this Rolex watch. Unfortunately, you can't see it because it's a podcast, but it's never left my hands, my arm uh, since I got it. So they uh, they obviously chipped in and, and got me that watch and that's that still means a lot to me. Wonderful gesture. Fantastic story. That's superb. At the point of your Chelsea career coming to an end, Chelsea signed the likes of Roberto Di Matteo, Gianfranco Zola and Gianluca Vialli. Did you believe, like many others did, that Chelsea were going up to a, another level? Yeah, yeah, no, but unfortunately I felt it on my own body, literally, because my last pre-season where I tried one last time, uh, I'm a, con- a little bit confused about the years, of course, but... My last pre-season is down, I think, born with a Devon, somewhere down the south of England. We've got, uh, I believe, Di Matteo, uh, Vialli, maybe I wasn't quite there yet, but some strong, strong players uh, with Gullit as the manager. And I hadn't played a match for, I believe, a year or something like that. And I was supposed to join in training. And with these new players... Um, I looked like a Sunday league player that were, had won the lottery, Chelsea lottery, so I could spend a session with these football stars. I looked like a complete idiot. I felt like an idiot and I was an idiot. I did not belong there. That was very, very uh, humiliating. And I, have, I had to leave training halfway through because of my knee, of course. Uh, but that's where I realised that Chelsea had just moved on uh, in the right direction. And I had moved on, not least thank, thanks to my knee, into the wrong direction. I was gone. I was uh, I was dead, dead tree now. Uh, and that was a horrible experience. Um, they were pretty gentle about it, but also a few shouts during this session because I wasn't there. I couldn't follow it. Technically, physically, not possible. But um, it's, it's one of those mo- moments I, I never forget, of course, that wasn't so nice, but... Um, that was certainly the end of it. Despite having the support of your teammates and friends, 
how did this affect you mentally, knowing that your football career was over? Quite frankly, when the decision was made, it was more or less with Mike that day at Harley Street. I was relieved. Right. It was a matter of getting out of this because, as I said, with this experience at the preseason with the big guys, the new new stars coming in, I, I wasn't a professional professional footballer anymore in my in my mind in my head. Uh, I, I wasn't there, so it was almost a relief to get out of this. Uh, instead of having more humiliation, if you like. Uh, so relief uh, and also bitter disappointment because I'd invested the whole life, uh, my my young life, just becoming a professional footballer, national player, uh, player of the year in Denmark. And here I was, dead tree. That was, uh, it was a very, very mixed situation. I hated it and I loved it because I'd lost everything I'd worked for and I could now look forward to a new life, new challenges, something I was good at, uh, maybe even the best. Uh, that's always been my mindset. If I get involved in something, I want to be the best. It doesn't always turn out like that, but I try. And then sometimes I end up being amongst the best. Um, so that maybe it's difficult to, to appreciate, to understand that m- mix of emotions, relief and bitterness. At the same time, I would like to switch gears now and talk about modern football. And one aspect that still divides opinion amongst many is VAR. So, Jakob, what are your thoughts on, on this technology? It's quite. Uh, it doesn't sound humble. Sound very humble. This. I'm. I am actually one of the inventors of VAR. I've got a, I've got a video to show for it. Uh, moving away from Chelsea, I became a presenter uh, and an editor at um, this TV3 Denmark sports channel. And in 2000, I say 2000, we played a match in Denmark, uh, uh, refereed by Kim Milton. David Beckham would remember him um, from the, uh, the World Cup uh, when he was sent off, of course. That was Kim Milton. That was the World Cup in '98. Exactly, when he sent off uh, David Beckham. He was the referee in this match, reserves of Brunby and FC Copenhagen, and that was that was with VAR, uh, because it wasn't my idea, of course, VAR, but we, we had one monitor for Kim Milton, and when there were questionable episodes, he walked out to check. It was more on, on penalty, not penalties, but corner kicks and this and that. It took far too long time. But I was then, because it was me that instigated this uh, match, and I sent the tape to UEFA because they asked for it. And whether that's the start of it all, I'm not sure about that, of course. <laughs> but I thought something needs to be done in 2000. That was talking about the, the, the Danish League and the Champions League because I was the host of that. Uh, and then jumping back forward to, to what you're talking about now, I'm a huge fan of VAR, but not the way it was used last season, certainly. I believe they're getting to a point where they use it in the right way. Those penalties given last season where, I mean, what was that for? It's, that, was a, that wasn't a sport for, for, for footballers anymore. Mm. Uh, the slightest touch, uh, it was just ridiculous. The, the off, offside things, what was actually offside, nobody really knew about it. I hope, I believe that they are getting closer to the Champions League way of doing it, which mm. I think was close to the right way of doing it, where VAR is an assistant 
a help to the referee. The referee is still the referee. He decides, but with the assistance of, of his VAR team. Um, we're all very romantic. I know that. But I, I, I strongly believe that we have to get rid of some of the worst mistakes in football. And that we can by the help of, of VAR. It shouldn't take many seconds. It shouldn't need to. I mean, I do television, as I said. It doesn't need to with the technology we have now. Who doesn't like the goal, goal line technology? It's easy. It's yes, no. Is it in yeah. or out? Yeah, of course. It's great. But we need to make that happen with, with the VAR on the, on the field, of course. Um, that I really strongly believe in. Uh, but it, it wasn't a good season last no. season with VAR and Premier League. I watched a lot no. of Premier League. It was a farce at time, of course, and poor referees. But um, yeah, no, that needs some. I believe some work has been done, and it's and it's better now, isn't it? With mm. the handballing, regardless of what happened uh, at Liverpool, um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. But there'll be situations. There always were situations, but mm. I think VAR is a help and we need that. And do you think the changes implemented in the English Premier League, for example, is because of the success that VAR received in the European Championships and the Champions League? Listen, Keith, this is what I don't understand. When you follow the Champions League and you see this is working pretty all right, actually. Why don't you just do it like that? Why try and invent your own VARs. Why? Copy with pride. I know that's the business I'm in now as well, of course. It's just so stupid. Please uh, forgive my language. But uh, so, yes, it's better sooner late than never, of course. <laughs> so, what it was a disgrace that it was like the VAR referee that was the referee in the end. At the Premier League last season, it wasn't the referee on the pitch. He was like just a robot uh, at times. And but I think they they are going getting back to what it should be now. I strongly believe they do. Otherwise, I'll be happily, I'll happily give them some advice like your your <laughs> <laughs> your listeners would, of course. Moving on from VAR, because I think this is a subject we could talk about for hours. But I would like to touch on the current Chelsea, if I can. The European champions, of course, and Chelsea looked very good recently in games against Arsenal and Liverpool. So what have been your thoughts on Chelsea, Jakob? Have you been impressed with them? I'm gobsmacked about how Thomas Tuchel came in and basically made a very good team that he inherited from Frank Lampard, who did well, I think, but basically made a good team, a fantastic team within uh, hours, was it? Has he made a mistake yet? I'm not sure he has. Uh, Whether it's just down to him or his backroom staff, I don't know. But that's one of the biggest transformations I've seen in any football club ever. Uh, Club didn't do it that quickly. Uh, Guardiola certainly didn't do it. Uh, it's just unbelievable, I find. Um, yes, he's got some very strong players, but they were there, a lot of them, before. So he is obviously very strong, very good at man management and at explaining uh, what he wants to do. Um, I thought the team he created very quickly last season was very strong. I thought there were some exciting signings with uh, Werner and uh, 
and and the rest of them, Werner got a lot of slaughtering. I saw that. I never understood why that was. You, no, he didn't score a lot of goals, but the change he made, the pace he gave the team, I thought was unbelievable. Uh, and now we go from a massive team to a just incredible team with Lukaku out there. Now we've gone from a great footballing side, great counter, great possession, this and that, to a team where the tactic, tactic is give the ball to Lukaku and we score. <laughs> I think that's obviously, he's, he's an unbelievable striker. So there's no hiding now for Chelsea. I don't think Chelsea wants to hide anywhere, but we, we I suppose we are favourites now for everything. Uh, we're probably not going to win everything, but it's unbelievable, this team, this squad. And while we have you here and while we're on the subject, what are your thoughts on Andres Christensen, a fellow Dane, of course? Yeah, his his story is uh, is magnifique, like we say here in France, where I live. To to see this guy who's uh, he seems shy, he doesn't shout that much, but he just goes about it, and he's got this skill. His level of skill is is unbelievable. You hardly ever see the man make a mistake. Um, to come in. After uh, uh, Silva got injured uh, in one of his first matches, wasn't it? Was it against Tottenham away at Wembley or something like that? Uh, Yeah, yeah. And he just came on. He never made a mistake. Never put a foot wrong uh, the Champions League final. That guy is just unbelievable. He's very strong for Denmark, of course, as well. But his mental strength, it must be unbelievable uh it's it's really strong because he's in fierce competition of course mm. he's not he can't make a mistake because then he'll probably get booted mm. um you know if when you look at the bench so the way he goes about it i think is uh is is almost sensational actually uh same for the captain who was out wasn't he in the in, under lampard in the end and now he's just playing like he's 24 mm. uh, i'm not going to even try saying his uh, surname because I've never managed to do that. That's your job as the host. Cesar Aspilicueta, but some people call him Dave. What a star captain. I I remember a lot of Chelsea fans. They, now we need to get rid of that guy now. He's old, he's slow. He probably lost a bit of the momentum at some stage. And look at him now. That's that's, that's a professional footballer who can handle some uh, stuff going against him. What a leader. Just unbelievable. Fantastic. Just a couple of more questions. How do you look back on your Chelsea career, Jakob? It's one that certainly had its ups and downs. With uh, just greatest joy, as you said, I had ups, I had downs, but the Chelsea family will just stay with me forever. They are just, I've got some lovely friends out of it. Wonderful four years of my life. And just finally, I did mention this on top of the show you're not just enjoying retirement in France just mention to the Chelsea listeners what you are up to these days yeah my job now is basically being the host for this reality show uh, which is called Survivor which was one of the first reality shows uh, in the world basically started in 97 it's basically two teams on a desert island they fight against each other if they win they get food if they don't win they don't get food they starve and then they vote one member of the losing team out in the island council. And I'm the bad guy shouting at them, like I did at the back three or five at Chelsea in the in the 90s. So I'm back to where I should be, just shouting and directing people <laughs> around me. I love it, every single minute of it. And I've done this for 16 
seasons now. So uh, I'm enjoying life. Very nice. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying life. I've absolutely enjoyed this interview. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. It's been a real treat for me and hopefully for the Chelsea listeners. Hopefully one day we will see you at Stamford Bridge in the future. We'll love to get back there one day. I will be there. I will be there. Lovely speaking to you. Cheerio. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.